Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm getting just a little bit of a late start here this morning, just a couple of minutes. So last week, we had looked at the introduction for First Peter here, and we hadn't actually done any of the questions. I know this is just the introduction, so I thought we would just, you know, take a quick look at the questions here. You know, to whom was the first epistle of Peter written? Who was his intended audience here? Well, he says, right, there, there is Christian Jews. He says in the first verse of the first chapter, he says, to pilgrims of the dispersion, and uh, living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, I'm going to say these as best I can, Asia, and Bithynia. We'll go with that. But uh, to pilgrims of the dispersion, now there is some indication later in the chapter that this also means Gentile Christians. But uh, if you said uh, Jewish Christians, I don't think that would be wrong either. I think it's probably to both. And it really does uh, apply to us as well today if we bring it forward and look at that in relation to ourselves. So question number two, what internal evidence suggests these pilgrims may have included Gentile Christians? We kind of mentioned that, but they tell us here if we look at chapter 1, verse 21... It says, who through him believe in God? And of course, you really kind of have to understand that he's talking about Jesus at that point. You have to back up a couple of verses. Um, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, that's how we were redeemed. And it says, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Again, speaking of Christ. And then in verse 21, who through him, Jesus, uh, believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Just saying that anyone that believes in Jesus, you know, would be, I would say, would be an appropriate audience for this letter. So there is that, that there could be. Plus, they were, uh, they were in these places, these locations. Well, we're going to get into that. Question three, what country makes up the region where these Christians lived? And we, we talked about that just a little bit, but we kind of see them through, I know. It's okay. The, these areas are in Turkey. So they wouldn't have all, more than likely, they wouldn't have all been Jewish. There probably would have been some Gentile or Turkish Christians. Whatever people in Turkey were back then, I don't know. So, so then uh, question number four. Who assisted Peter in this epistle, in this letter? And the person has another name that they're called by. If you remember in the introduction, he, he mentioned this. This is in chapter 5, verse 12, that uh, Silvanus, also known as Silas, is mentioned. Again, I, I know this is just the introduction, so it's okay. It's not. It says, when was this epistle? Question 5 says, when was this epistle written? 
And if you look at the introduction notes, uh, the, the common belief is uh, 63 to 64 AD, just, just to cover these things. And then question six, where was Peter when he wrote this epistle? And Peter himself said he was in Babylon. So was that literal Babylon? Was that just somewhere that's hostile to Christians, which it most likely was just somewhere that was hostile to Christians, maybe in Rome? Um, and there was some thought that it could be Rome or Jerusalem because, as we know, the Jews weren't very uh, favorable towards uh, Christians either back then. So, all right. So, oh, and that, and that answers question seven. Sorry. So question seven, what other places might this symbolize be Rome or possibly Jerusalem? And then question eight, what threefold purpose did Peter have in writing this epistle? And we mentioned that as well. It's uh, to encourage steadfastness in the face of persecution, to remind them of their special privilege as God's holy nation, to instruct them as to their proper conduct. So we can point that towards us and we, we can say that's to encourage us to be steadfast in the face of persecution, to remind us of our privilege as God's holy nation, and to remind us of to have uh, proper conduct as Christians. And then if we look at the next few questions, question nine, what is suggested what is suggested as the theme of this epistle, and that is conduct becoming the people of God. And then the key verses, they actually listed this back in the introduction. If we scroll back, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And this is, this is kind of a theme within, uh, especially the New Testament, but within the Bible, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So that was what they had put forth as basically the key verses of this epistle. And then question 11, according to the outline offered above, what are the two main divisions of this epistle or letter? And uh, they had said basically it was our salvation in Christ, which is the first short part of the letter, and then our duties in Christ. Which, is, which makes up the bulk of the remainder of the letter when you get outside of uh, where they had specified, I think it was the first part of chapter 1, when you get beyond that. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into chapter 1. I, I would prefer to go ahead and get into that rather than Really, we, we cover the introduction just because that's material they have here that may have some helpful historical information or other that would be useful to us, just general overview information. But All right, so let's start with uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's just read the first couple of verses. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So that's like the little introduction here. Uh-oh, I didn't look at question one, the main points of the chapter, they break it into three parts here in our study where the introduction is the first couple of verses we just read, and then there's our salvation in Christ, which is verses 3 through 12, and then our duty in Christ, picking up in verses 13 through 25. But having just read this introduction here, if we look at question 2, we're going to kind of revisit to whom does Peter address this epistle, and where are they located? Verse 1, it says to the pilgrims in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right, to the pilgrims. Now, what does pilgrims mean? Someone who is journeying to a destination. Journeying, they're journeying or they're traveling. They're temporary residents. They're not permanent residents. And that's, again, that's a biblical theme that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are traveling. We are not, this is not our end destination. This is not where we belong for eternity. So then, okay, and then where are they located? We, we talked about that. It's these different places and the, those are in Turkey. So. so question number three, what three things are said concerning their election? Though, actually, just kind of a quick bonus question where it says elect, and your translation may say a little different word. What does that elect mean? What are, what are we getting at when we say that? That's in verse two. Chosen? Right, chosen. Right. So it says, because if you if you kind of shorten this out a little bit, you can say, to the pilgrims chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Several translations actually say that who are chosen, because that we don't use the word elect in quite that way nowadays that much. So I think sometimes my brain just kind of skips over, you know? Yes. Makes you think of uh, when we have our election, we choose somebody who's running for the office. Right. And that's that's how it's intended to be. Like like an election, we choose the person that is running for office. And this just means that God chooses us. Chooses these these pilgrims and we relate that to us as well. Christians. I, I had a comment. Yes. Uh, even though he chose us, we have to choose him. Yeah, we have to choose him. Yeah, there's no, that's not definitely, you don't, we're not taken away from that. Because he gave the word, and after he gave the word and we hear it, it's our decision to choose what we're going to do with it. Right, it is our decision. We have to choose. Yes, Eileen. So with that word, elect, there are congregations where denominations that believe that they have been elected by God. 
and that's the that's the foundation that they stand on to say that God chose me and I have no choice in the matter. Oh well that's a misunderstanding though. God is really that, that is where they stand. Right. If 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 people use that to say that God has chosen me and I have no recourse, that, that sounds similar to the Calvinist thing where the, they believe that if God has chosen you, it doesn't matter what you do, you're chosen. But that's not really biblical. That doesn't follow the rest of the Bible. And really God has, I think of it more as God has really God has given everybody the opportunity. He made everybody. So really, in some sense, in a way, everyone is chosen. It's whether they choose to reciprocate. It's kind of like the prodigal son. He's still the father's son. He just hasn't chose to come home. So there is that aspect of it as well. But I just, I think it's important for us to realize, though, that God has chosen us. He and anyone who walked in off the street who wanted to choose God and follow him, he would be chosen by God as well. So, I mean, that, I don't know. To me, it's important, though, for us to realize that God does choose us. He doesn't throw us away. He doesn't cast us away. We're important to him as his children. Does that answer good? All right. Um Yes, surely. We can say that, that we're predestined, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's provided a way, but that doesn't necessarily say that we have to be an active participant to be completely. Yeah, when they say. Away. If this is similar to, like you mentioned, predestined, where I forget uh, the different places where that's mentioned, but. When they talk about predestined, well, yes, God created us, his children, with the intent that we would follow him and want to follow him. So in that sense, we're predestined, but we have to choose to follow that. We have to choose to follow him. Yes, Pat. We have to be careful with that word because uh, there are denominations that use the word predestination. Is, uh, all you have to do is believe. And it doesn't matter what you do in your life, you're predestined to be saved at the end. That's their... Yeah, and that, that ignores the teachings of we, we have to follow, be faithful, and we have to do the works that we're supposed to do, right? So that ignores critical, important things when people say that they're, that predestined means that you're in regardless. Because that's not, that's just not true. If... Right. If we, yeah, I mean, we can always turn away from God and that's, and that's, yeah, that's on us. If we turn away from God and walk away, then we have salvation, but we can lose it or reject it. That's just if we choose to. Yes. This dictionary says prepare beforehand. God prepared beforehand. Right. So we can either obey or we can disobey. Right. He's, it's up to us. He's prepared beforehand. He's prepared a way, an opportunity for us to come forward and choose that. Right. Yes. 
Anybody have anything else on that? That all this conversation was exactly what I wanted to have happen. <laughs> yeah, because of that word elect. Well, yes. because of that word elect, yes, and or chosen or however you want to say that, or predestined, that's another that that's and those words are in the Bible, but we have to take all of that in context and take it as a whole. We can't just pull out that by itself. So I know sometimes any of us could make a mistake and do that, but, but we want to be careful of that. Okay, so we covered that, but we didn't get to the real question because that was more my question. When I read that, my mind was, I just wanted to make sure that we understood what was being said. So, so the real question here, what three things are said concerning their election in the verse? It's in the verse itself. So. Uh, it's the work of the Spirit, obedience, and sprinkling of Jesus' blood. And uh, number two, obedience is what we're, we're talking about. We have to obey. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood, right? So yes. And in sanctification of the Spirit and according to the foreknowledge of God. So according to the foreknowledge of God, we kind of already spoke to that, just meaning that God has already prepared a way. And sanctification of the Spirit, the process of being freed from sin or purified, which we would have to do by coming forward to be baptized and, and you know, believing in the Lord, having that action. All right. So then, if we look at question number four, what has God done for us according to his abundant mercy? Oh, wait, I hadn't read that part. Let's read, uh, I'm sorry, I kind of messed that up. Let's read 1 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And then we'll, then we can answer that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now had been reported to you 
through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So now we can look at question four. What has God done for us according to his abundant mercy? And we well, Three, it says uh, he's begotten us again to a living hope. Right. And begotten means to be born again. That's right. So he's begotten us again to a living hope, which means we've been born again, right? We have been uh, buried in baptism and raised again with the Lord. And then the other C, we'll see. Um, then how was this done? And this is also in that verse, and I guess I already kind of said it, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right, from the dead. And we, again, we go through that in baptism. So question number five, what kind of inheritance does the Christian have? And he mentions that in verse four. And it's incorruptible, undefiled, it's, in, it's eternal, it's reserved in heaven, right? It's our treasure in heaven. Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be. So that's the kind of inheritance we have in Christ. And where it is now, our treasure is in heaven. So if we look at question six... How are Christians kept or guarded for their salvation? And that, too, is right there in verse 5. And we are kept or guarded by the power of God. And then it says, through faith. So through our belief in God, by the power of God, that's how we are kept and watched over. God, yes, Pat? It can't be taken away from us. No, it can't. It, we can reject it, but it can't be taken away from us, right? People can't take it from us. Nope. We can't, we can't take that from each other or somebody out there can't take it from us. Right, that's... So if we look at question number seven, in what do Christians greatly rejoice? Well, if we look at verses five and six, though I say mainly six, I guess, but uh, we greatly rejoice, right? Um, well, no, five, five is part of that. We rejoice for our salvation, right? So we know that we're going to be with the Lord. And first, well, verses five and six, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice. So we rejoice in our salvation. But then if you look 
At question eight, you know, we're also encouraged to rejoice in our trials, right? But if you look at question eight, what benefits can come out of enduring grievous trials is the way they say that there. Well, in verses 6 and 7, again, it tells us that uh, it's the testing of our genuine faith, the, uh, the trials, the troubles, the things we have that happen in this world that we go through. They're for us to learn and to strengthen our faith and to grow in the, in the spirit in following God, right? We're to, we're to learn as we go. That's... I mean, really, if you look at the reason for this life is to learn to be more like our father. That's the whole idea. So. And also it says, um, let's see, I think this is in verse seven. Let's see that, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that also, that's kind of faith building on faith. Because when you praise and honor the Lord, that also helps build your faith, even as you go through your trials. If we look at question nine, then. It says, though they had not seen Jesus, what is said about Peter's readers? And again, this would apply to us. says they had not seen Jesus, right? But they loved him. They loved Jesus even though they had not seen him. They believed in him and they greatly rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Right. Yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Whom having not seen you love. And Again, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, whom you having not seen, you love. That takes a right, because we do not, we did not get to see Jesus, but yet we believe Jesus, and we rejoice over the salvation that He has brought us, and uh, and we love the Lord for what He's done for us. When you look at what he went through and what he did for us, how can how can you not love someone who would do that for you? So, so then if we look at question number 10, what would they receive as the end of their faith? Or what do we receive, really, at the what's the ultimate end, I guess, of our faith? Our salvation of our souls. Our salvation, right. Our salvation of our souls, that's, that's the ultimate end for us, is that we are saved to be with God and the Lord. So, if we look at question number 11 then, what did the prophets of old testify about? This, this is to make a comparison, is the idea here. So the prophets of old, they testified about the Lord, about Jesus, his coming, the things that they, they didn't see it either. 
But they testified about that happening, about him coming. But they didn't live to see it, just like we didn't live back then to see the Lord on earth either. So it's kind of a kind of a comparison being made. Um, so to, to put it the way they have it here, uh, they testified about the salvation and grace that would come and of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And then, if we look at question 12, when these prophets wondered about, let's see, did I read that right? When these prophets wondered about, they were prophesying, oh, when these prophets wondered about what they were prophesying, what were they told? And then this is in verse 12, and basically, Peter says here, they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us Christians in the future. They were ministering things that, you know, have now been reported by those who preached the gospel. But they were ministering and talking about that before it happened. And the angels desired to see and understand those things, he mentions as well. And they prophesied in faith about the coming of the Lord. And that's really a very similar thing to what we do when we talk about the Lord and the fact that he will return. It's very similar for us. We're still prophesying about the Lord coming back. Yes? Oh, back to uh, question number 11, what talks about the prophesying of Christ's suffering. Many times it's read at, uh, at the Lord's Supper, Isaiah 53. Yes. Quite lengthy there. Yeah, Isaiah 53 does, that's a, that's a good prophecy of what was to come. And I think I've used that for the Lord's Supper as well. So, yeah, there's, that's a, and that's a good example of that. Does anybody have anything else before we read the next part? Okay. All right, so let's look at, again, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 25. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you, having purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere 
love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So do we, let me see what time we have here. Okay, we're going to do one thing. We've got a few minutes. If you look at our uh, verse there, verse 13, it says, Therefore, and I know different translations say this differently, but look at, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. So, gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Think about it. Think about it, okay. It, um... I did, I did some looking at this because that's such an odd phrase and we would probably never use that, that phrase nowadays. But um, there's, a, there's a couple of things to notice, but uh, there's a couple of uh, translations like the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version that say, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And it's akin to, if you remember how when they wanted to run back then, they had to gird their robes up around themselves so that their legs were free so that they could actually run and not trip and fall and, and have trouble like that. And this is that same kind of idea about preparing your mind, discipline your mind, that sort of thing. So I just thought that was interesting and thought, yes? When I uh, think of gird up your loins, I think of Lucille Ball when she goes into the, the bat with the great... She takes her dress and she pulls it up over herself. Lucy does do that. Yeah, when she gets in the vat with the grapes, she does pull her dress up like that so she can do that, which is kind of a funny, that's a funny take on that. So anyway, I think that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you all for your attention and participation.